Today is our uh, seventh in our eight-week summer series in the book of Genesis centered around the life of Joseph. This has been a series that we've entitled God Meant It for Good. And if you've been hanging on wondering where that came from, uh, you'll find out next week as we close the series. Uh, so far, we've looked at chapters 37 to 45 in Genesis, where we trace 22 years of Joseph's life to see God working behind the scenes to grow Joseph from a 17-year-old boy sold into slavery by his hate-filled brothers into a 39-year-old man who is second in command in the most powerful nation of the world, managing the food supply during a severe worldwide famine. Well, maybe you will remember that we skipped a chapter on our way through. Today we're going to go back to that chapter, Genesis 38. In doing so, we wind the clock back 22 years to focus on another of Jacob's sons, Judah, in a message that I've, that I've entitled, Meanwhile, Back at the Ranch. And we'll find out where that came from in, in a moment. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to just pause for another moment and, and pray. Lord, we come to you this morning to, among other things, hear this message from you to us. We accept this written word in our hands, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in us who believe in Jesus. Please speak to us this morning, and by your grace, may we hear it, may we receive it, may we accept it, and would you please do your work in us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38. I suggest perhaps you may want to buckle your seatbelts. Follow along with me as I read from the English Standard Version. And if you're following closely, the minor change of language is intentional. And since we've been sitting for a while, perhaps I'd invite you as you're able to stand together for the reading of God's Word as I read Genesis 38. Please feel free to follow along there. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was born in Kizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. 
In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, as she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as they drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Please be seated. What do we do with this? This chapter puzzled me for years as I was thinking about it, probably as long as 25 to 30 years. Every time I came to it over those years, I asked God to give me understanding. Why is this here? apparently breaking up the story about Joseph. Is this chapter about Judah's life inserted as an interesting but unrelated interlude in Joseph's story? And also, it's not light reading. It is a dark and sordid chapter, full of sin of all kinds. And I still remember the day that it hit me. Laurel had just read the chapter and asked me about it, particularly as to how it related to a very difficult situation we were going through at the time. God used something she said to make it 
all suddenly come into focus after all those years of wondering. And I hope today to be able to share with you what I see as the profound reason that Judah's story is here. So let's dive in. The author, Moses, gives us a time stamp in two verses. If you look in chapter 37, verse 36, the last verse of chapter 37, it says, Meanwhile the Midianites sold him, that is Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And then chapter 38, verse 1, It happened at that time that Judah went down. That's where our title came from, Meanwhile Back at the Ranch. A common literary technique, you know, Rancher Joe has gone into town to look into some business and things are going well there. However, meanwhile, back at the ranch, the rustlers are creating havoc. So here we see Joseph is in prison, or sold to Potiphar actually, in the house of Pharaoh. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, life goes on in Judah's life back in Canaan with its own twists and turns. So the timestamp is both of these things are happening at the same time. Joseph begins his journey, and Judah begins his journey through chapter 38. So as we go through this story, I will do the best I can to be discreet about how I speak about the moral failures portrayed here. So as we dive into this, verses 1 to 11, we're going to look at Judah's family. I'm going to illustrate what's going on here with these slides because uh, it can be a bit complicated to follow. So Judah's father is Jacob, and Judah is the fourth of 12 sons. While visiting his friend Hira, the Adullamite, Judah sees and marries the daughter of Shua, who remains unnamed. She's only ever referred to as the daughter of Shua. She was a Canaanite woman outside the family of God's people and one who worshiped false gods. And it's significant where, when Moses says that Judah went down from his brothers. He left his family for this particular part of his journey. Well, Judah's wife bears him three sons. The firstborn is Er, the second is Onan, and the third is Shelah. Judah takes a wife for Er, whose name is Tamar. Ur is described as wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what he did. It's just he's described as wicked in the sight of the Lord. And in God's sovereign will, he makes Ur die, making Tamar a widow. Well, then Judah instructs his second son, Onan, to perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, basically to marry her. Now, this is a cultural practice that is strange to us, but well known to them. And God actually includes this in the Law of Moses 500 years later in Deuteronomy 25. And basically, it is this. If a man, a married man, dies without a son to carry on the family name and inherit his property, the man's brother was to take the widow as his wife. And the first son that was to be born of that union would belong to the man who had died, not the man who was the actual father. This practice was a protection for both people. It was a protection for the widow so she would be taken care of. 
and it is also a protection for the name of the man who died, for that name to continue on and not die out in the community, and for his property to remain within his family and not end up somewhere else. Well, we read here that Onan does not want to fulfill that responsibility, so he repeatedly refuses to do what is necessary to have a child by Tamar. For that reason, we see in verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also, making Tamar a widow again. Well, Shelah, the third son, is next in line to marry Tamar. If you are Judah, what are you going to do? Well, Judah tells Tamar to live with her father until Shelah grows up to a marriageable age. Apparently, Shelah was not quite old enough to be married yet. So he says, you go to live in your father's house until Shelah grows up, and then you can marry him. But notice in verse 11 what is driving him. He says, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. He was being driven by this fear that he's already lost two sons. He's going to lose this third son. And he was not going to risk his only remaining son to this woman who seems to be dangerous for his sons. Despite the fact that it's not her that's the problem, it's the son's wickedness that led to their deaths. In any event, he lies to her. Well, that's Judah's family. Wonderful portrait, right? Well, let's look at the next section in verses 12 to 26 of Judah's failures. We read there that, that um, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, dies. And here we see another tragic loss in his life. After a period of grieving, he goes to shear his sheep. Excuse me one moment. When you hit the wrong button and the screen goes blank, that creates panic in the hearts of the preacher. But we're okay now. We're back in business. I know the message, but I don't have it memorized. In the meantime, Tamar realizes that she has been deceived. Shelah has grown up, and Judah has not allowed Shelah to marry her as he had promised. So Tamar comes up with her own deceptive plan to deal with Judah's deception of her. She dresses up as a prostitute and stations herself along the road where he will see her as he passes by on his way to shear the sheep. She is certainly not sinless in this matter, in this immoral plan, but she obviously knows her father-in-law well enough to know what he will fall for. Not knowing that she is his daughter-in-law, he asks to come into her for the price of a young goat. Since he doesn't have the goat with her, or with him, they negotiate that he will give her his signet, his cord, and his staff as collateral, which she will return to him when he gives her the goat. The signet was a stamp or a seal that if you were signing an official document, it would impress this into some clay that would mark this as belonging to Judah. So this was something that was very specific to him that no one else would have had. Well, when the act is completed, 
Tamar puts her widow's clothes back on and returns to her father's house. Judah then sends the goat with his friend Hira to get his things back. But Hira is not able to find her, even after asking the men of the town where the prostitute can be found. Strangely, he's told by them there's not been a prostitute there. So to avoid any public embarrassment, Judah gives up the search. Well, then comes the climax of the story in verse 24, if you look there. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So three months later, it is discovered that Tamar is pregnant, which had to happen by immorality, since she currently has no husband. And Judah demands that she be executed. I don't know if you're like me, do you see any hypocrisy here? Verse 25, though, she says, well, I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. And she produces the signet and the cord and the staff. She easily identifies Judah as the one responsible for her pregnancy. And then in verse 26, Judah's response is this. He identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. We see here in verse 26 that he confesses his guilt of hypocrisy and lying and declares that she is more righteous than he is. And we're going to say a little bit more about this verse in a few moments. So we saw Judah's family. We see Judah's failures. Now we're going to take a very quick look at Judah's fruit in verses 27 to 30. And by that I mean the products of this pregnancy. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Tamar goes into labor. Turns out she has twins. Perez is the firstborn with Zerah the second. Like I said, that one would be brief. So that is the main drift of the story. But now let's turn to see why this chapter is here. And it's here for us to see what God has done in Judah's life. To properly understand chapter 38 and why it is here, we need to remember the two bookends of Judah's life that we've seen so far. The first bookend is where we started this study in Genesis 37. And I'd invite you to just turn back to verses 26 and 27. Remember, Joseph's brothers hated him and wanted to kill him and saw him in the distance and were plotting to kill him. And in verse 26, Judah speaks. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our own brother, our own flesh. So Judah comes up with a plan as an alternative to the brother's original plan to kill Joseph. In these and later verses, we see that Judah is cold-hearted, self-centered, hateful. He's a liar who allows Jacob, his father, to believe that Joseph was dead, killed by a wild animal. And he's a hypocrite because he's one of the comforters. He's one of those who gathers around his father to comfort him over Joseph's death knowing full well that Joseph was not killed by a wild animal. And here in chapter 38, what we've just looked at, we see those same sinful traits. 
and we can add to that now immorality of a serious kind where he even goes in to his daughter-in-law. Well, that's the first bookend at the beginning. The second bookend we see in Genesis 44. And if you please turn forward with me to Genesis 44. This is what we talked about the last time. And if you remember, Joseph planted a silver cup with Benjamin. And Benjamin is caught with that cup in his possession. And Joseph confronts the brothers and if we look at verse 16, it is Judah who starts speaking because they're trying to figure out how to resolve this. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord and what shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But this is Joseph's answer. Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph gives the brothers the chance to leave Benjamin in Egypt and to return home, basically to treat Benjamin the same way they treated Joseph. But let's look together at Judah's response to this crisis just a little further down in verses 33 and 34. We're not going to look at his whole speech, but look at the end of this in verse 33. This is Judah speaking. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." Judah's attitude towards Benjamin is very different from how he treated Joseph 22 years earlier. Judah is now truthful, he's kind, he's unselfish, he's warm towards his father and his brother. He is self-sacrificing, aware of the pain suffered by his father, and here he is standing in front of Joseph as a radically changed man, tenderly and humbly offering himself as a self-sacrifice in place of Benjamin. The key to understanding this tremendous change in Judah in the 22 years between Genesis 37 and Genesis 44 is Genesis 38. Let's turn back there again to look at some of these things in more detail. So let's first look more closely at his response when he is confronted with Tamar's pregnancy. And we looked at that in verses 25 and 26. Let's look at his answer again in 26. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. There is no arrogant, high-handed response, no excuses, no attempted cover-up. Rather, in that one statement, he confesses his immorality, he confesses his hypocrisy, he confesses his deception, and he confesses his fear. He is a very different man than the one who sold Joseph into slavery. And he's a very different man than the one who lied to Tamar about his son, Shelah. And in verse 26, the statement, he did not know her again, reflects that he has genuinely repented. He has changed course in his life. And he is now respectful of her and is protecting her from further shame, further harm, and further abuse. 
And though it's not a subject of this message, I really think it should be noted that here God is protecting Tamar. And she is vindicated by Judah's statement. She is more righteous than I. So what do we see here? It was the losses and sins of Judah's life that we see in chapter 38 that God used to bring him to this point of confession, to this point of humility and tenderness. An incredible journey that he went through. God's work in Judah is an individual significant enough, but there's something going on here that's even bigger than what we have just seen in chapter 38. You may have noticed that I keep repeating that our story so far has taken us 22 years. Maybe you're getting tired of hearing that. That is because this is a significant number to our story. Let's think this through together by making some reasonable assumptions about the timeline of Judah's life in Genesis 38. Well, let's assume that Judah's three sons Er, Onan, and Shelah were born early in his marriage, about one year apart. Let's further assume that they were of marriageable age, around age 18. I think these are reasonable assumptions in the story. The story doesn't give us those clues, but I think it gives us enough information to make those reasonable assumptions. That means that Er marries Tamar 18 years after chapter 38 starts. Onan marries her one year later, 19 years after it starts, and Shelah is old enough to marry her an additional year later, which takes us to 20 years. Tamar then gets pregnant by Judah with delivery of twins about nine months later, which now takes us somewhere around 21 years after chapter 38 began. And you say, oh, all right, well, that's interesting. Or maybe you say, well, that's boring. Maybe you're not even saying it's interesting. But we need to remember that Joseph is sold into slavery into Potiphar's house at the same time that chapter 38 starts. And the scriptures are clear on this timeline. There were 13 years that Joseph worked in Potiphar's house and was imprisoned. Then there were seven years of managing the storage of grain during the years of abundance followed by two years of famine at the time his brothers, including Judah, show up the second time for food. So if you add those numbers together, 13 plus 7 plus 2, what do we get to is 22 years. The events of chapter 38 in Judah's life occur over this same 22-year period and exactly correspond to the timing of God's work in Joseph's life and when the brothers show up in Egypt. Perfect timing of God's work in Judah's life to transform him from who he was in Genesis 37 to who he became in Genesis 44. Well, in those 22 years, what happened to Judah? Well, first, he lost two sons. Judah lost two sons. By the time at that 22-year mark that Judah is standing before Joseph, he understands from personal experience, and not that far distant in the past, he knows from personal experience the deep grief that his father Jacob was suffering from the loss of Joseph. Before he could tell Jacob that Joseph was killed by a wild animal, the hard heart 
But here he knows what it's like to have lost two sons. Secondly, he refused to let Shelah marry Tamar out of fear of what may happen to him. So by the time he's standing before Joseph, he understands from personal experience Jacob's reluctance in sending Benjamin to Egypt out of fear that something bad would happen to him. And thirdly, God confronted Judah with his cold-heartedness, his hypocrisy, his lying towards Tamar, and Judah had responded with a humble confession, acknowledging his sin and failures. So by the time he's standing before Joseph to appeal for Benjamin's life, he understands from personal experience what it is like to have his sin exposed and to respond with genuine confession, repentance, and humility instead of with denial, making excuses, and selfish pride. In a way that only God can, he was at work in Judah's life in Canaan for that same 22 years that he was working in Joseph's life in Egypt. So that when the two finally met in Egypt, they were both very different men, prepared for what God had planned with very precise timing on God's part. And if you remember, it was that profound change in Judah's attitude that led to Joseph finally breaking down and revealing himself to his brothers. That's why Genesis 38 is here, to give us a glimpse of God's work in this sinful person over a long period of time to bring things together at exactly the right place at exactly the right time to accomplish exactly the right outcome. Judah was guilty for his hatred of Joseph. Judah was guilty for selling Joseph. Judah was guilty for how he treated Tamar, how he mistreated Tamar. But that didn't stop God from accomplishing his great purposes in and through Judah. It's astounding if you stop for even a moment to think about it. But there's more. There's something even bigger than what God was doing during those 20 or so years, something that outlived all of them, something that none of them ever would have been able to imagine. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew starts his book. Wait till everybody gets there. Matthew starts his book, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is tracing Jesus' earthly lineage from Abraham clear up to Jesus Christ himself. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Notice verse 3, which I'm sure you have already. Judah is in the family line leading to the birth of Jesus. Not Joseph, as you might be inclined to guess. And someone has said this about Judah. In Genesis 37, 
Joseph had a, has a dream of his brothers bowing down to him. And they did, in a temporal sense. But with the long view, we see that Judah's offspring was the preeminent one, the one before whom all men would bow. And catch this. The kindness of God extends this far. Judah, a stain on his family for many years, repented and became the father of the king of kings. The kindness of God extends this far. Judah, a stain on his family for many years, repented and became the father of the king of kings. But notice also that Tamar's son, Perez, by Judah, is next. In verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, by Tamar. God takes the abuse and the shame that Tamar suffered and allows her to be a mother through whom one day the Savior of the world would come. One person said it this way about, with, about Tamar. And with Tamar, the long story of redemption is heard, not only at the end of Genesis 38. Redemption is realized when Tamar's ultimate progeny lives righteously, acts justly, loves mercy, and dies on the cross for sinners and rises for our justification. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. As I said, it's astounding if you stop for even a moment to think about it. The whole story reminds me of Luke 5:32, where Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God is not surprised by our sins and our failures. God's plans cannot and will not be derailed by our sins and our failures. God is fully able to, and in fact, wants to rescue us from our sins and our failures. He does not condone our sin. He does not excuse our sin. He does not overlook our sin. But he rescues us from our sin and even uses the consequences of our sin as part of his rescue plan. Judah and Tamar could have had no idea that out of this sinful relationship that they had would come Jesus Christ, the one who came to save them from the sin that they had just committed. God uses only broken, sinful people, just like you and me, to fulfill his perfect plans. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Genesis 38 is not just an ancient story about interesting people who are long dead and is now irrelevant to us. Paul says in Romans 15, 4, which I referred to before, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God has given us Genesis 38 so that through its story, we can find hope in the midst of our own failures, our own sin, trusting that God will do his work in his perfect time, his perfect way, to bring about his perfect purposes, even in and through us.
God's work in Judah's life had repercussions 22 years later, 1900 years later when Jesus came, in the year 2023, and on into eternity. Beyond anything he or his father Jacob or his brother Joseph could ever have imagined. Similarly, we have no clue, no clue, what God is doing behind the scenes in our lives and in the lives of those we love. It's possible that we, like Judah and his family, may get to see in our lifetime some of what God was doing, but it's also very likely that we, just like them, will die having no clue how God is going to use our lives for his work 100 years from now, 500 years from now, or for eternity. It just boggles my mind to think about it. It was 12.30 p.m. two weeks ago Sunday after church, and Laurel turned to me and said, do you really believe that God is working behind the scenes in the lives of all of these people we care about? Our children, our grandchildren, our friends, your mother, our church, you and me. Do I believe it? Yes, absolutely. Do I always live as if I believe it? No. In the relentless pain of days, weeks, months, years, in the confusing uncertainties that defy understanding, in the ongoing loss of what seems so important, I personally find it to be a great struggle to trust that God is truly at work in what I cannot see, mainly because of what I can see. I'm going to say that again. I personally, and this is a personal confession, maybe you're there with me, I personally find it to be a great struggle to trust that God is truly at work in what I cannot see, mainly because of what I can see. I see that I live in a world that is a mess. I see people I love living lives that are a mess, difficult, painful, challenging, unfair, suffering, at times almost hopeless. And I see that I am often messing things up in my own world. But what I cannot see is still true and trustworthy, that God is always at work in the lives of his people who have been damaged by sin to accomplish his perfect results with precise timing for now, for many years from now, and for eternity. And that work of God includes me, includes you. It's hard to believe. He only accomplishes his work through people who make mistakes. How God works is mysterious and unstoppable. I'm again reminded of this amazing thought from 1 Corinthians 2.9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That verse constantly amazes me because we have vivid imaginations, do we not? We can imagine all kinds of scenarios, things that don't even exist now, we can imagine. And the things that God has prepared for us are beyond our wildest imaginations. As you think of your own life with its challenges, its uncertainties, its pain, think of Genesis 38. May you remember the amazing work that God did in Judah's life, both for him and for those who followed him. 
if God can do this with Judah, what can he do in and through you and me? Let's close. As we reflect on the significance of this message for ourselves, let's just spend a moment in silent prayer after which I will pray. Dear Father, as we close this message and as we go into this time of celebration of the Lord's table, we confess that we are sinners who regularly make wrong and foolish decisions. But we are grateful for Jesus who died to take away our sin and who rose from the dead to give us a new life of faithfulness to you. Thank you for this reminder from Judah's life that you only work with sinful human beings to accomplish your great purposes. May we remember anew all that Jesus has done for us. Help us to be quick to repent of our sin, quick to trust you to be at work in our lives for good, and in our times of doubt and discouragement, help us to truly believe that you are at work in ways we cannot begin to imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.